As you can tell from my dulcet tones, I am a Dagenham boy originally. Don't know if anyone else is here from Dagenham, as we prefer to call it. <laughs> no? No one ever been there on holiday? <laughs> oh, what a shock. Anyway, so uh, let me give you a little introduction. So some of you will remember me from men's stuff. That, that was what that was about. I used to be introduced at conferences. This is Cole Beach. He's hugely passionate about men. <laughs> well, no, I'm an evangelist. Uh, I told him this thing would pop off at the back. It's going off already. Uh, so I've got a weird-shaped head. I think this is going to come off about five times while I'm speaking. Anyway, I used to do that, and then I'm still involved in that. I run a festival called The Gathering, which is a men's event, and help steer Christian Vision for Men, but my day job, my main thrust and passion is steering the message trust as it grows across the UK. And some of you will remember the message from the Worldwide Message Tribe, I'm sure. <laughs> Jumping in the house of God, jump up. Jump, someone's doing the actions already at the back. Three people. So let's... <laughs> And uh, you'll remember those days when uh, my great friend and co-worker Andy Hawthorne used to dress up in green PVC and uh, jump around. And by his own admission, uh, he said he couldn't rap, he couldn't do hip-hop, and he certainly couldn't dance. Uh, and I said to him, well, it's quite amazing, really, because if you remember back, some of you will remember this, they reached hundreds of thousands of kids with the gospel. It was just an astonishing thing. I mean, their biggest gig, they played to 70,000 young people. That, and preach the gospel in that context. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And, uh, and I said to Andy, I went, wow, how, did you, how do you stay humble when you're preaching to 70,000 people and you're being picked up by limousines and you're getting record deals and people are taking you to posh parties? He said, it was really easy. I said, how was that? He said, we knew we were rubbish, so it must have been God. <laughs> it must have been the anointing. And actually... That's what we're about today. We don't believe we're the best, we don't believe we're the most gifted, but man, are we passionate about reaching people with the message of Jesus. And we want to use everything that God's placed in our hands to do that. And that's what happened to me at age 18. Grew up in Dagenham, grew up in Romford, dad was a cop, mum was a dressmaker, traditional uh, East End upbringing, I suppose, Essex East End upbringing, never went to church. Only time I went to church actually was when someone died. That was about it. Uh, so there's no other context or explanation about Christ or the gospel. Very long story short, a uh, very good mate of mine, which will become relevant later, very good mate of mine called Bigsy. His name's Alex Biggs. I'm meeting him soon, actually, in London. He's still in touch. Uh, I called him Bigsy because when you grow up in Essex, you had a Y on the end of everyone's name. So if you get to know me, you call me Beachy. So Beachy and Bigsy, we were, we were the best mates. We were the Laurel and Hardy of the school. One day I found that he was a born-again Christian, as he described it. He said, I'm a born-again Christian. I thought, ooh, what a horrible phrase. That sounds like you're Cliff Richard. That's actually what I thought at the time. And so I mercilessly took the mick out of him, and uh, very long story short, he invited me to church. I was about to join the British Army, and, uh, and, and this guy who's an ex-paratrooper happened to be preaching and explained the message of Jesus Christ, and, and, uh, and that was it for me. I remember standing up in a church, in a little brethren chapel, actually, weeping, actually wailing as the truth about Jesus Christ impacted my life for the first time in this very traditional <laughs> quiet church, and I'm crying like a man. I mean, I'm noisy, and it's messy. <laughs> and uh, I stood outside the church about an hour later once I stopped shaking, and I looked at this dying little bush on the other side of the Yard Green Road in Hornchurch, and weeping again, and Biggs is standing next to me saying, why are you weeping? Why are you crying, mate? I went, look, it's a tree, with, it's got leaves and everything. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> Seriously, I'll never forget this. He said, what are you talking about? I'm going, they're green. The leaves are green. It's like, what? And it, I was seeing the world that God had made for the first time. And that night, driving home, I'm looking at people of all shapes and sizes, all colours and races, driving home through Hornchurch and Romford, and tears are streaming down my cheeks. Why? Because the first time I'm looking at people, I'm thinking, these are people that God's made and they don't know. And I've got to tell them. I've got to tell them. I didn't know it was called an evangelist. But I knew that day, 22nd of April, 1990, 7 o'clock in the evening, that was going to be the driving force of my life. And actually, I had a Bible someone gave me. The only Bible I owned before that was the Gideon's one I was given at school, but I smoked it because it was made of Rizzlers. <laughs> so, so someone gave me a Bible, and, uh, and I wrote in a cover, which I still got in my office at, home, at work, that I'll dedicate the rest of my life to telling people about Jesus Christ. And the person who gave me the Bible was actually a girl that I really fancied. And truth be known, I'd only been going along to the church for six months to chat her up. I even pretended to have a conversion experience because she said I only go out with Christians. I actually faked being born again once, uh, but she saw right through me. And she gave me a Bible. In fact, the day I gave my life to Christ, she gave me a kiss. I thought I should have done this six months ago. What am I waiting for? Uh, but she actually became a wife. So it was like a big cosmic ambush, wasn't it? It was astonishing, really. Well, I wrote in the front of the Bible, I spent the rest of my life telling people about Jesus. Next day, I went down to my dad. I'd just gone through officer selection to join the World Tank Regiment, actually. I went down to my dad, who was a flying squad detective, and said, Dad, I'm not joining the British Army anymore. I'm, I met Jesus Christ last night, and I'm fighting battles with him instead. And my dad didn't even look up from the frying pan. He went, you still fancy girls, didn't you, son? That's the main thing. And I like, completely <laughs> came me. So that was my first foray into evangelism, which I wouldn't say was very successful. Um, but since then, that has been the driving force of my life. And how can it not be for anyone who knows Jesus? Whether you're a banker, a bin man, a dentist, a van driver, a nurse, no matter where God's placed you, can we use the totality of our lives to make Jesus known? And that's why we're coming to the Midlands. We, we, we felt this mandate from God. You all know the Message Trust said, basically, Jesus lived in Manchester for the first 25 years of his existence. So it was very hard to get the tribe out of Manchester, but... We, we really felt God call us. And actually, for me, this is an astonishing response to a word of God I have. And I studied in Coventry University at 18 years of age as a new Christian. I stood on the balcony, the 11th floor of a place called Caradoc Hall, which is actually angled, looking out over Birmingham, the black country. And one night, it's one of the few times I profoundly felt God speak to me. I looked out over the city, and I, and I wept, actually, and wrote down on a sheet of A4, which I still have, that, that God was going to be moving in the Midlands one day and that thousands and thousands of people would come to Christ on the crest of a tidal wave. I was presenting about the higher tour, which I'm going to tell you about for two minutes in a moment, at a gathering in Coventry, and someone came over to me and said, God gave you a word once, and I believe God wants to say, this is that. This is that. And what I want to say to you is that we are coming to the Midlands to work in partnership with local churches to reach as many young people as we can with the message of Jesus, while we're still able to communicate Christ, while we're still able to build relationships with schools, that's what we want to do. We'll go insensitively. We'll share our stories. We have some astonishing bands and performers and 
people who are gifted and able to communicate Jesus. We have even a team, a guy who's got cerebral palsy who now goes in and talks to kids with disabilities and special needs. And we'll do what we can to communicate Christ and then invite people, these kids, into big gigs and proclaim the gospel. We did it in Manchester two years ago, just about, and we saw two and a half thousand young people give their lives to Christ for the first time. How about that? That's beautiful, isn't it? Two and a half thousand young people. And we're going again at the moment in Manchester, and we've not even got to the big gigs. We've had about 300 young people give their lives to Christ for the first time without even trying, because I think it's got God's smile on it. And what we simply do is this. We work in partnership with churches. We build relationships with schools. We've opened an office in Birmingham, some of you will know. We're investing very heavily. We have a budget of just under half a million pounds to do this. We don't know where we're going to find it yet, but we're dreaming big. We believe God's called us to dream big. And we're going to use everything that God's placed in our hands to do it. We'll build relationships with the schools. We'll do three weeks of intense uh, mission in schools where we'll reach, we think, something around 55,000 kids with all the schools that we'll go into. Then we'll invite them to lamp on the stand gigs in Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Solihull, Coventry. We'll proclaim Christ. And here's my big dream. The big dream is that thousands and thousands of young people are going to give their lives to Jesus by the end of next year. And I'm going to get, metaphorically, a tipper truck load of young people with all kinds of issues and annoying habits, but now I love Jesus. I'm going to tip them into your church and go, over to you, leaders. That's actually what we want to do. That's the big dream. Like we, had a, we had a thing in Manchester where the guys went to a Christian union that had five kids in it. And after the hire tour, they went back, it had 93 kids in it. And I mean, this is culture shifting. That's what we're aiming for. It's a tour that will be a culture-shifting number of young disciples. And we don't just want this moment where we preach the gospel and that's it and we go away. Actually, we want to invest long-term. And we've done all kinds of work on an app to develop follow-up. Like kids, they live their lives on their screens, don't they? So we've got Bible resources on an app we developed and we're training up youth pastors in locations across the city so we can run a 12-week discipleship course we're running. So we want kids to come to Christ and not spin off to the edge, but start a whole new life following Jesus. It's exciting, isn't it? And that's coming your way in March, April next year, which is why I'm here to say, you know, can we do this? Can we do this together and reach thousands of young people across the West Midlands? It could seriously change the culture of our cities. We came across a statistic from the Kinsella Institute that said if 10% of a population group adopts a view, it gets adopted by the majority. There's 2.5 million teenagers in this country. So what if we could reach 250,000? Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, that's a bit naive, Carl. You're not going to reach 250,000. Would you know what? We're going to give it a go. We're just going to give it a best shot. We're going to use everything that we've got to just at least have a go on our watch. Now, and it's personal to me. I've got two daughters. One is nearly 19 and one's 17. They both love the Lord. I've had the privilege of baptising both of them in the last two years. But you know what? It was such a massive struggle, particularly with my eldest. I watched her get bullied. I watched her struggle with depression and anxiety. And I was thinking, man alive. And school was just a nightmare for her. And actually, she'd come home from school and it was still a nightmare because she's getting attacked on Facebook and Twitter. And we even had the police out once. She was beaten up on my driveway by a gang. It's just like the weight of oppression was upon her. And it becomes personal then, doesn't it? And the only thing that's going to turn her life around, I knew, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that would pull her through would be that. That's it. There would be nothing else. And I truly believe that. That only the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform our cities and our 
universities and our schools and our towns. Do you believe that? His name's Jesus, isn't it? It's only Jesus is going to do that. You know, clever administrative policies are not going to do that. And I just gloriously saw Jesus impact my daughter's life and change her life forever. And not just her life, but her destiny. And that's what we want. You'll see that bit there with Mo Timbo. Do you see the guy preaching? And he says, you know, put your hands up on the count of three. That guy's an ex-gangster. And we led him to Christ in prison. And while he was in prison, I think he led something like 230 of the prisoners to Christ. And now he's come out and planted a church which is exploding in some of the toughest areas of Hull. And he preached the gospel that night. And hundreds of kids received Jesus. And what we do when the kids uh, receive Christ, they get a pack, they get a, a, a full Bible that we've designed. Uh, we have little cutaways of some of the key scriptures and it's linked to the app with some Bible teaching resources. We give these to people who have given their lives to Christ for the first time. We've given away 8,000 so far. So it's just very, very exciting. We want to put this in the hands for free to thousands of kids in the West Midlands. A complete Bible. We're passionate about the Bible and we'll be looking at the Bible in a moment. So we want to do that. And we do an extensive follow-up with the app and all these resources so that these kids don't spin off to the edges. It's a very exciting thing. But we're also hoping for multiplication of our ministries as well in the Midlands. Some of you will know we do something called Eden, which is moving teams of people in partnership, only in partnership with local churches, into some of the most toughest and deprived communities in the UK. We work especially in the bottom 5% areas of urban deprivation. That's our target, are young people and the poorest of the poor. We're a missionary movement to those particular uh, groups of people. We've now deployed over 600 urban missionaries through the Eden movement. It's the fastest growing missionary movement since the Salvation Army. It's a beautiful thing just seeing people pour their lives sacrificially into areas. We'd expect to see more Eden, more creative mission, soul box engaged full on in the Midlands. And Enterprise too, we now run nine businesses in Manchester where we're employing people who come out of prison who are unemployable and think they have no hope. We have a bunch of houses so we can give them a home. We give them businesses so they can have a job. They get a first year apprenticeship with MVQs, second year on a living wage, and then we have partnerships with businesses so they become employable. And we've actually now got the re-offend rate down to a remarkable level. If you go through a government program, 80% of the time you'll re-offend. If you come through our program, it's now about 8% of the time you'll go back into prison. It is a profound rescue mission, the Message Trust. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever poured my life into. And we're here to say, would you partner with us in it? Because we actually want to see these kids get that sort of opportunity as well. We want to see enterprise in the Midlands. We're already beaving away in the background with a pilot project. We're looking at more Eden, more creative mission, and reaching tens of thousands of kids with the message of Jesus. I hope you're up for it. You're up for it. I hope you are, because we're really passionate about it. And uh, just before I look at the word, I just want to tell you about this. You'll see we've, uh, my car has been scraping along the motorway. I think I've completely destroyed my suspension with the amount of packs that I brought with me today. Uh, what we're looking for, we're desperate about the church partnering with us. We, we cannot do this without you. We don't get government money to do something like the higher tour. You don't get government money to do something like Christ-centred enterprise, where we say the answer is actually the gospel, not, not programs. Um, so what we're doing is saying to the church, uh, could you support us? We've got a, a budget of around £440,000 just for the first go at the high tour in the Midlands. And what we're saying is, actually, it's people power that will make the difference. And we're having to unashamedly ask people, we need your prayers and we need your financial support as well. If you're able to support us, even just a few pounds a month, what we want to do is actually have a partnership with you. So we want to resource you as well. Uh, so I have a pack where people partner with us, we're just pouring resources back. So for instance, in our lovely pack, 
you'll have uh, a CD from Vital Signs. Vital Signs are a couple of gangsters who met Christ and now they're our team. We especially send into the hardest to reach areas in prisons and the toughest schools. I think if you're over 25, you'll hate this CD. But if you're under that, you'll absolutely love it. So, uh, but they've just won a global award too, the Anai Domini Award, which is filled full of filth and stuff, and, and they proclaim the gospel. So it's a, we'll give you that. I've just written a book on, on the Beatitudes called The Way, which is a radical sort of look at how we live with the opposite spirit. And I'd love to put that in your hands as well. Maybe what a, a message for me too, to thank you for coming into partnership with us. Two of Andy Hawthorne's books, uh, which is based on teaching we do. We, we have teaching every single day at the message. They're based on the book of Isaiah and some very, very powerful testimony stories. Uh, also, a coffee table book about the Eden movement which is just a remarkable story of just urban mission and investing into some of the poorest communities in the UK. And a couple of other bits in there. And the final thing, if you're able to partner with us today, is I have this USB, which doesn't look like a lot, but actually it's got 100 talks on it from people, unique talks of people who come through the Message Trust and taught us. Tony Campolo, you know, Brother Andrew, Danielle Strickland, Andy Hawthorne. Uh, a couple from me, and a whole bunch of other people, which is an amazing resource, actually. So we'd love to put that in your hands as well. I've actually bought about 100 packs of me, and we're hoping that a whole bunch of you will say, yeah, we'll stand with you. And what I'm saying to you is that every penny that you support us with is staying in the Midlands for the higher tour and beyond. So it won't, it's not going to Manchester. This is support for the Midlands. So if you're able to stand with us for a few pounds a month, We'll put that pack in your hands, and that would be brilliant for us. But here's the thing. If you can't support us and you want a pack, just write to me, and we'll give you a pack for free. We'll give you all those resources for free anyway. But the packs I've got in my car for people who sign up today, but we will honestly send you one, uh, and that's that. So please do think about that. But you're not here to get a sales pitch off me. You're here to hear the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to see this happen. God, so much. We want to see this happen. Help us use everything in our hands to reach the last, the least, and the lost. Dear God, help us. We need you, Father. We need you to transform communities. Be present, God, as we look at your word. Speak to us, we pray. In these next 15 or so, 20 minutes, God, speak to us, we pray. Show a remarkable picture if we're able to... Uh, pull up a picture on the uh, PowerPoint I sent over. Um, anyone know who that is? It's not Gandalf, just to give you a clue. That is uh, a figure who we find, and I've found for many years, incredibly inspirational. That is William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. But you can see what he's doing. He's actually standing in a Ford Model T car in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, William Booth, and he was the guy who did the as long as there are widows and orphans and the poor, I'll fight guy. In the early 1900s, William Booth brought a quarter of the global stock of Ford motor cars at that time. No one had ever seen anything like it. And do you know why he did it? He did it because he knew it would be a magnet. He knew if he, if he drove the full Model T car into towns and communities that he would draw a crowd. Look at the bloke standing next to him in his driving goggles on. Probably only went about 10 miles an hour, but I must have my goggles for driving the full Model T. 
He spent the equivalent of a couple of million quid today in order to draw a crowd. And he was a passionate gospel preacher. He basically thought, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to draw a crowd so I can preach. It's a bit like why we have hip-hop guys and rappers and all that kind of stuff. It's a bit of a reason why I've got a secret Ferrari fund at the moment, if anyone wants to contribute to that as well, at the end of the service. And it's this whole thing about, can we use what God's placed in our hands so that we can reach some? And our thing is, how do we reach these kids? How do we reach youth culture today? It's through stuff that we don't sometimes like. But can we be innovative and can we reach out and can we think outside the box so that we can reach some people? Can we get on the front foot of God's purposes? And I'll be honest with you, sometimes, now I'm, I'm like nearly 46 now, which is not that old really, is it? But I, you know, sometimes I hear some like Christian thrash metal and I'm like, ugh. That's completely satanic. How can there be anything of God in that? But I'm sure people used to think that sort of stuff about the things I was into years ago. And I'm sure people sometimes think that about some of the stuff we're up to at the moment in the high top. But it's about using whatever God's placed in our hands so that we can communicate clearly the message of Jesus and get on the front foot of God's purposes. But there's this other piece, isn't there, too? It's not just preaching to those crowds. There's a whole legacy piece behind this. You know, Psalm 145 says, one generation will commend your works to another. There's this whole thing about multiplication that we're into, that we're sensing God speaking to us about. There's a whole thing about not just seeing a kid make a response in a moment, but what follows next. And I've been really praying into this about the high tour, actually. What's going to come next out of this? What's the enduring impact across generations? That's the powerful thing for me. One generation will commend your works to another. This whole kind of viral thing that moves through generations. I was in Dudley two weeks ago. And this has honestly been my prayer. I've got a thing where every week I try and learn five Bible verses. And I underline them in pencil in my Bible. It's like my way of meditating on the Word. And I've been meditating on this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. which says, you know, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Do not be moved. You know, stand firm. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And I'm trying to learn this verse right and the verses surrounding it. But I, was, I had this meeting in Dudley and I've been up since five and then I had to go to Dudley and I was, it was going to be a three-hour drive back to something else and then I was going to have to get up again at five the next morning. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit whingy. I was a little bit... I'm sure all of your beautiful, shiny faces coming back and you never get grumpy. But I was actually feeling a little bit moany. And I was in my car, I was like, like, I don't know, my inner voice goes something like, <laughs> it's like really horrible. It's all thankless and horrible. And I didn't want to go. Anyway, I went to do a presentation to a bunch of church leaders and I got there and I'm sitting at the front trying to shake off the grumpiness, hungry and tired, now I'm a bit sleep deprived. And this guy comes and taps me on the shoulder for the meeting. And bear in mind, I'm trying to learn this verse, your labour in the Lord is not in vain, hold firm. Stand fast. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. He touched me on the shoulder and he says, Are you Cole Beach? And I went, I am. Because I always worry when people ask me that. And uh, I'm he. And he said, ah. He said, I need to tell you something. I went, oh. And he said, <laughs> and he said uh, and I'm the worship pastor of New HDB Church Plant in, in a black country. I went, oh, right. He said, many years ago, this made me feel really old. He said, you did a conference in Wales and you preached the gospel to a bunch of guys. I went, I did. And memories came flooding back. 
is one of the toughest times of my ministry. When people see you stand on the front of a stage, I don't realise actually you can have a tough time sometimes. You can have waves of despair and moments of exhaustion. And, but actually this was politically one of the toughest times of my life and I felt like I was being tripped up all over the place and attacked. And then my memories came flooding back. You're labouring the Lord, it's not in vain. But that was a really tough time. And he said, yeah, I took four teenagers with me. All right. He said, you need to know this. He said, because you won't know this. But that day, all four of them gave their lives to Christ. I said, oh, fantastic. And he went, no, no, no. He said, two of them are now ordained ministers and one's a missionary in Mozambique. I could have wept. I could have wept. I'm like, that is amazing. I didn't even know that. This is, this is 13 years later. I had no idea. Not only did I feel slightly older, <laughs> but I thought, that's everything. And what if we go into these schools and with your support we get in there and we do it? But years later, there are young people sitting here who go on to become business leaders who are Christians and church leaders who are Christians and missionaries and, and they lead people to Christ and they lead people to Christ and they lead people to Christ. That's how a nation changes. Do you believe that? It is. That's how things change. It's not just about seeing these thousands of responses. It what, it's what comes out after it. And I'm compelled to say that I believe there'll be some people sitting here who need to make a full-on decision for Christ, even today. And God will use you for his purposes. By that day I met Jesus, the 22nd of April 1990, I would have conceived that I'd be communicating the gospel on a platform. I'm sort of weirdly shy and, and actually quite an introvert. I mean, I don't understand how I'm doing this. It's only because God's called me to do it. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be hiding in an allotment shed with a cup of tea, <laughs> reading a paper. I only do, people think I'm an extra, I'm not. I've just got on the front foot of God's purposes. And I'm telling you, there are young people sitting in here today. If you make a decision today or whenever to say, I'm all in for the purposes of God, he will use you to change this broken world. And he'll take you to the wire and he'll fashion you and mould you to be God's person. But you'll be one of these people who are commending a commending the work of God one generation to another. It's just about saying yes, and we have a decision, don't we? I think we have a decision. Like our lives are so often on the stem of a why. I can remember a time when I was feeling called into ministry and I was going through selection to be a Baptist minister. I'm not a Baptist minister anymore, but I spent a decade as a Baptist minister. But the week before, I was phoned by a headhunter. I used to be a banker before that was a really evil thing to be. I was a banker in the city in London, a salesman, earning a fortune before I spent it all on urban church planting, self-supporting for a number of years. But I was. And this headhunter phoned me up, and I, and I had a meeting with the CEO of one of the biggest brokerages in London. He was sitting there in his Armani suit with a nice espresso in his big glass office. And he said to me, I'll make you a millionaire by the time you're 30. I'll put you in a BMW 3 Series. We'll start you on 100 grand a year plus bonuses. This is, this is 1995. That's a lot of money. <laughs> that was a lot of money. <laughs> I've never looked back. But he said to me, I'll make you a millionaire by the time you're 30, but I want your soul. That's actually what he said. I want you to bleed for this company, but I'll make you rich. A week later, I'm in a, a building in Ipswich being interviewed by the Eastern Baptist Association by 12 moderately angry, grumpy men. <laughs> and uh, the first test was... Give me three theologists and a book of Romans. <laughs> I'm like, ooh. And the building was a bit damp and smelt faintly of old, horrible things. And uh, 
and they, they phoned me later that day and said, we'd like you to train for nothing, plant a church, there'd be no salary and, you know, uh, yeah, but uh, we really think God's put a call, of, you know, a call on your life to, to do this. And I remember thinking, millionaire, hmm, <laughs> yeah. Man, I thought, what well, a death benefits are going to be better if I go God's way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, how could I not? How could I not? I might not be standing here if I hadn't made that decision. I'd rather be standing here and living my life kind of like make a load of money, buy a holiday home in Spain, take up golf and die. How naff. I mean, what is that? Well, one day I can go to heaven and I'll look around and we'll all be there. And then we'll look around and there'll be a whole bunch of people that surprise us that they're there. And their friends and their family members and dear God, maybe one day my mum and dad will come through and my sister and her friends and her husband and, and they'll be like, I'll be like, why, why, why how come you're here? And they'll be like, well, because you didn't give in. Because you made a choice and you proclaimed Christ. And it wasn't actually you maybe that signed the deal, but here we are. I want that one day, don't you? I don't want my kids just to be some fading photograph in some album or book that's been printed up by Apple. I want them to be remembered by God. And I want that for all these kids in the schools. But we have a choice. Life is full of choices. And there's a profound choice in Scripture. I'm going to read you this passage and I'm going to say a few things for a few minutes and then we'll respond. There's a, a profound passage that's very well known from Luke 15. The prodigal son. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The young of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. It's the temptation of the world, isn't it? He's there and he's, he's looking at his dad's money and the lure of the world is out there. I'm sure many of you feel it. The temptation to go the world's way rather than stay on the narrow path of Matthew 7 and go Jesus' way. It's such a temptation, isn't it? And he went and he squandered his estate with loose living. And then it happens, isn't it? He spent everything and a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. And that is so often what happens. You go the world's way, you can go God's way, you go the world's way. And there's this thing happens called the law of diminishing returns. You try and satisfy the flesh, as we would call it. And somehow it's not enough. And so you try more. It's like you, you, you have a bit too much to drink and then the next time you're going out for a few drinks, you need that one more drink and one more drink, one more drink. It's the same with sex addiction, any addiction. It just doesn't kind of satisfy. And you live on the edge a little bit if you've got that red self-destruct button that so many of us have. You know, it's just not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. And suddenly you realise you've got nothing. And your head's hovering over the pig's wheel. That's how desperate it got. And then he says, he gets desperate, verse 18, I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You can imagine him, can't you, preparing his speech. <laughs> like, oh, what am I going to say to my old man? What am I going to say? And he's turning it over and over and over in his head. But this astonishing thing happens where his father sees him from a long way off and throws his arm open and, and embraces him. He makes a choice to come back home. I was in Madrid for a conference two, two years ago, which is one of the worst conferences I've ever been to in my life, uh, one by a management consultant from Dallas who, who didn't like me from the word go because I'm a fidget. And they kept, and it, you, know, you get off the plane and we were taken to this conference hotel with no windows. And uh, that's really bad for me as a mild sort of ADHD sufferer. And, uh, and you know, just a little bit of a rebel probably. And uh, so I kept trying to escape for cups of tea and things. You'd be like, his name was Tom. And he'd be, Carl, get engaged. Get engaged. And I'd be, okay, Tom, get, get back engaged. I'm like, I'm just going to And then leave me alone. It was called Systems and Processes for Effective Church Planting, which even that makes me feel really depressed. So uh, why have you sent me on this horrible conference? So anyway, long story short, I escaped. I broke out with my mate, Daz. Me and Daz, it was like the great escape. But we actually went the wrong way up the hotel and had to sneak back past the room to uh, <laughs> the white bus. And we managed with our pigeon Spanish to get on a bus to downtown Madrid. And we, I thought, well, if I don't claim expenses, and it'll be okay. You know, that sort of makes it all right, doesn't it? But anyway, we, uh, we were having a coke in the middle of the, the square in Madrid, looking at these street performers doing acrobatics. And as I'm standing there, I, my eyes being drawn over to this alleyway. And it was, I felt like it was maybe a nudge from the spirit, but I wasn't sure. And I said to Daz, I want to go down that alleyway next. And he went, I want to watch these street performers. I said, I want to go down the alleyway. He said, I want to watch the street performers. I said, I'm the boss, we'll go down the alleyway. He said, let's go down the alleyway. So he went down the alleyway, and it turned out to be full of strip clubs uh, and, and an Irish bar. And uh, so I, I can't tell you everything that, that, that was said to me, but this guy, this young guy, jumped out in front of me. He was sort of like, huzzah, uh, carrying postcards. And uh, I'm like, oh, um, hi. And he said, uh, you guys who want some girls. I went, no. He went, come on, you want some girls. And I went, no, I, I don't really want any girls. And he went, come on, man, why are you two guys, you want some girls? And I went, no, I'm a married guy. And he went, you want some girls, come on, you're a married guy. And I went, no, mate. And then something clicked. I don't know why I sort of said it like this, but I said, I said, mate, I'm also, a, I said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm a Christian, so I follow Jesus Christ. I'm a married guy. And then, I, to this day, I don't know why I said it. But Daz is standing there with me, and I said, you used to know the Lord, didn't you? And as I said it, I'm thinking, why am I saying that? <laughs> That's quite bold. <laughs> you know, so you're saying, anyway, his arms went down to his side. He's quite a cool guy, actually. And he's wearing his cool T-shirt, and he went, man, Look at my arms. And they'd come up in goosebumps. And I went, you did. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you did. You used to know the Lord. Like, what happened, son? Well, what's happened? Guys, tears in his eyes. He can't look me in the eye anymore. And he says, his words. 
I was raised in an evangelical church. He said, I'm not from Spain. He said, and I thought I knew better. So I left home. I've been homeless and I got into club promotion. I got into drugs. It's a prodigal son. He said, and then I ended up doing this club promotion, but that didn't work, so now I promote brothels. I saw my arm on his shoulder and I said, man. I said, I'm going to tell you something now you're not going to believe, but I'm, it's absolutely true. I said, Almighty God has sent me and my mate here to this alleyway today to Spain from the UK just to meet you. He said, how can you say it's just to meet me? I said, because I'm in the world's worst conference and I know the Lord doesn't want me to be in this conference. It's to meet you. He said, why would you need to meet me? He said, you have a father in heaven who loves you, son. And it's your time to come back home. You come back home now. You know, you need to go back to your family. And God is reaching out to you. I think he's giving you a chance. Anyway, we end up holding hands in this alleyway, sleazy alleyway. As he's prayed to God, and he wept as he gave his life back to Christ. And we have a hug, and then we walked off. And then five minutes later, Dad says, don't you think we should have got his name and address and some details to connect him to a local church? I went, oh yeah, because we're evangelists and not pastors, right? So he thought, oh yeah, let's do that. So we, we went back and we saw him. He was actually sitting on some steps, still weeping before God. To think that God loves someone like that. And he loves all those kids out there. And what will this guy go on to do? I'll show you a photo of a mate of mine as I finish. Um... I haven't got time to tell you the full story, but that guy on the left was a neo-Nazi terrorist who I met in the curry night in Barrow-on-Saw. Another moment when I was feeling a bit grumpy about going there, actually. There were only 20 people there, and I'd been away in Amsterdam all week for work, and Karen, my wife, had brought me to go and speak in a curry night. I said, what did you do that for? She said, because I felt the Lord wants you to go. I'm like, oh, I hate it when you say that. So, and I went to this curry night, and this guy sat opposite me. I didn't know who he was, but he was also sitting next to an op- a guy called Paul Gask, who is a great mate of mine, who is an area coordinator for CVM. He used to be a counter-terrorist police officer. Anyway, I said hi to this guy there on the left, and he just looked at me like he wanted to kill me. Um, and uh, at the end of the preach, I, they gave me 10 minutes to preach the gospel, and at the end of it, after a chicken boon and an arm bread, I'd actually said to the guys, what's the dinner? They said, chicken boon and an arm bread. I said, what if you don't like chicken booner? He said, you can have a arm bread. So I went, oh, right. So it was a terrible night, really. But this guy came over to the bar, and he said, can your Jesus forgive anybody? And I said, yeah, he can. He said, how does that happen? And I said, well, it's like this. And then he said, he said, can you forgive a Nazi who gashed Jews to death then? I went, yeah, he can. He said, how does he do that? I said, like I just said. And he walked out the building, the curry house. My mate Paul came bounding over and he goes, significant, significant, very significant, significant. I said, why is it significant? And he said, because he was arrested at gunpoint planting a pipe bomb at a, a, a gay pride rally, actually, and he's this top echelon terrorist. I went, well, thanks for letting me know. But I was like fronting him out of the bar. Appreciate that. Anyway, he went home that night and he couldn't sleep, and the next morning he found a Baptist church opening Barrow-on-Saw, and the door was open, early, early doors, and a 
pastor was preparing his sermon, and he literally walked up behind him and he went, without introducing himself, you may, he's a big lad, and he went, I heard the gospel last night about Jesus Christ, is it true? <laughs> and uh, thankfully the pastor was a proper one and said, yes it is, and uh, communicated, <laughs> communicated the gospel, and uh, he got on his knees in his study and gave his life to Christ, and then 18 months later he preached the gospel to 3,000 kids on Holocaust Memorial Day about peace and reconciliation. First person he led to Christ was his son, then he led uh, someone, uh, a gay guy to Christ, someone who used to try and threaten and kill. Then he led a black guy to Christ, who's someone who used to send bullets through the post to uh, leading uh, black sports people and stuff to threaten to kill them. They're the first three people that he led to Christ. Only our God can do that. The guy standing next to him is Swanee. He's actually called Graham Swan, um, and he, he was booked to do a, uh, an outreach in Northampton and they put, he come in here to test me at Graham Swan. It was 300% oversubscribed because they thought it was Graham Swan, the cricketer. But it wasn't. It was, um, it was Swanee, the tattoo artist from Loughborough. But, um, but I'll show you the next picture. The next picture is a beautiful thing. That guy there being baptised is a bloke who once had a death threat on the previous guy, Chris. He was a neo-Nazi terrorist in a rival gang. Chris comes to Christ. He comes to Christ. Everything in that evil, wicked world starts to crumble and the glory of God is seen and felt. Wow. Wow. What could happen in the Midlands when Jesus is involved? God is calling his sons and daughters home. The hardest and toughest to reach Kids you thought were unreachable. We're going to give it our best shot. And when we get on the front foot of God's purposes, who knows what can happen? Anything is possible. But we have a choice. And the choice is this. A, will you use everything that God has placed in your hands to win some and reach out? B, will you go God's way and not your own way? Will you submit your life to God's purposes full on 100%. No dilution. No compromise. Sat on the edge of my bed at the age of 18 and wrote down in my Bible, I'll go wherever you tell me to go and do whatever you ask me to do, no matter what. Can we pray that prayer? See, are you on the edge of your faith? Have you walked away? And is it now time for you to say, I'll come back? Because you have a Father in heaven who loves you. D. Maybe you've never committed your life to Christ, but now you're hearing me say, God will use you and everything he's placed in you to help fix this broken world and build his kingdom and make you the man or woman that you deep down know you ought to be. There's decisions to make today. We have choices. I'm here today because I believe there's going to be a revival movement in the Midlands amongst young people, the likes of which we have never seen before. I believe it with all of my heart. We need all of you involved in this. Prayer, pounds, people. Let's do this thing. Let's bow our heads. <coughs> Heavenly Father, would you speak to our hearts now in these moments? Speak to our hearts, God. I cannot not do this. I have to ask, 
If you want to commit your life to Christ for the first time, maybe you've been sitting there thinking, oh God, I'm outside of your reach. You've heard everything about the gospel. You've been sitting on the fence. Maybe you think that if God really knew what was going on in my life, there's no way he'd love me, but this morning you've heard something where you know that now that's not true. If you want to commit your life to Christ for the first time, while everyone's heads are bowed, but I'm watching, you want to pop your hand in the air and I'd love to pray for you so you know that Jesus died for you. He rose again. He can give you a new life. And now you're saying, actually, I don't want to sit on the fence anymore. I actually want to commit my life to Christ and go his way and not my way. Is there anyone here who doesn't know Jesus who wants to take that first step towards him this morning? And if that's you, then pop your hand in the air. Secondly, are there those who you've not fully gone God's way? Or you're just been, your back's been slightly turned or slightly walking away, and now you're thinking, I want to be fully in actually, fully in on the purposes of God. No holding back, no more compromise, all in for Jesus. Pop your hand in the air. I'd love to pray for you. All in for Jesus. No more holding back. Yeah, so just keep your hands firmly in the air. I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm all in now. It's a new day. Thank you, Jesus. So, God, you've seen these hands. Quiet your spirit, God. Strengthen, equip. Fashion them to be the people that you've called them to be. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And if you want to commit, if you want to commit to helping us reach thousands of young people, would you stand? And let's lift our voices in prayer. If you will say, I'm in for this. I want this to happen. I want to see thousands of kids come to Christ. Would you stand with me? We stand as a sign of commitment to God. Just lift our voices in prayer where you stand. And pray that the heavens would open, the glory of God would be seen. That thousands of young people would come to Christ. We call out to you, God. We call out to you, God. Help us, Lord. We need you. All for you, Jesus, for your fame and glory. We can't do this without you. We need you so much. Thank you, Lord. Pour out your spirit, Jesus. The amazing grace you've experienced, we pray, will be experienced by thousands of young people across this region. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now. And that's our prayer, God, that as you experience amazing grace, so you'd open the eyes of the blind across this region, that they would be singing that song with meaning. And one day we'd be in heaven together with tens of thousands of young people who know you. Thank you, God. I'd love to talk to you all further. Please come and see us at the stand. And thank you for your time this morning. I just pray, God, you'd do something special here in Jesus' name. Amen.